Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. It's Wednesday the 9th of March 22. This podcast is the second episode in our Fog of War series which considers the war in the Ukraine. It's one of our interesting times podcasts in, in which we offer our take on various current affairs. Now if you've listened to Fog of War 1, uh, you'll notice there that I, I promised to get back to you with Fog of War 2, uh, which would deal with some of the historical context of, of the war, uh, rather more quickly than, than I have managed to do. Uh, these things always seem to take me long, longer than I expect, and uh, I mean, mainly uh, events were moving so quickly that by the time you'd formulated something and wanted to comment on something, there was uh, another event or another statement or another unfolding development that required you to uh, think again. And and this this is what it's like. One is in a state of of, of constant flux in trying to appraise this thing. And this is precisely what the fog of war is. And this morning, Anna and myself were discussing... Uh, various takes that we'd listened to or read or watched on YouTube on the unfolding events. And we we, we both were agreed that pretty well every possible take on the matter is being entertained and vociferously proclaimed as the truth of the matter. and in, and, and in vast quantities, and, and this really is the fog of war, this is the dense, dense mist of war. And so, the, of course, everybody has an opinion, and the, 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 the commentary is in a state of great excitement. I mean, there's nothing like war for getting those guys excited. And, and it gets more and more difficult to discern what's go, going on uh, by the day. Now, we, we said before we, do, we don't have the resources to even begin to approach extracting ob- objective truths about what's going on on the, gr- on the ground at the moment. I mean, it, it's, what we do know is it's, it's pretty bad for the, the, the people on the ground, the, the people of Ukraine, particularly in the areas where, which the Russian army has reached. I imagine, and it's not too far-fetched, that uh, many of the Russian troops, uh, who are young men, teenagers, and that they're probably not having a great time either. There's a lot of propaganda about their morale, their preparedness, their competence as troops and all the rest of it, as there is bound to be. Uh, but I think we can safely assume that there's a good lump of those uh, young young men, a good proportion of that that body of young men that's that's, that's suffering very greatly. War, one thing is always the same: old men talk, young men die, and we should bear that in mind too, in my opinion. And I think that's kind of in, ineluctable, really. This is what we know: massive suffering. Massive needless suffering. And that's the first and the last of this matter. And 
obviously we need to fill in everything in between the first and the, and the last to, to gain some kind of understanding. Now I proposed in the, in the previous episode it would be useful to have a little bit of historical perspective. And I don't think that's, again, that's something that's going to be a, a, a attained overnight. And I've uh, attempted, uh, my first reflex actually was to, was to just try and figure out what are the antecedents, how far back do we need to go and how complicated is it? And the answer is very, and the answer is that it's, it's, it's multi-layered and complex and you can go back as far as you like to be frank. And, uh, of course, Mr Putin does with his pan-Slavic uh, rhetoric. Now, what, as I said, what we've been doing is we've been uh, casting our net, our investigatory net, far and wide, and we don't just stay in our bubble. I've been listening to uh, lefties, obviously, um, uh, people like... Um, like Brian Becker and Abby Martin and Yanis Varoufakis and so on. But I've also been listening to people from the heart of the beast, you might say. And, of course, the Oxford Union, if they're going to have a debate, they wheel in the, uh, the previous head of MI5, Sir Somebody. And then on a later occasion, they're wheeling in like, a Professor of International Affairs and... And an ex-NATO guy and all this kind of stuff, and they, they, they tend to, for the consumption of the uh, the future establishment, they bring in the uh, the old guard of, of, of the of the current establishment. But I listen to them uh, them as well, and I will say one thing about that particular uh, group: uh, they're extremely technically uh, well uh, informed. They've got quite a lot of detail at their disposal even though probably a little bit out of date, because they tend to drag in the retired wallers. But there's always this this, this weird lacuna. Uh, and and I've got to try to figure out what it is, what, 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 what the unease I was feeling uh, was, listening to these characters. And it is that they absolutely do not question that they are the good guys. They do not question that the establishment is right. It's a presupposition that the that the that the, uh, the UK establishment is just automatically right, automatically truthful, automatically knows the truth, automatically is better informed, automatically is more competent, and this is the the, the privilege of a ruling class that's that's that um, that's kind of partly hereditary and that that instructs its its young people, uh, its offspring in the arts and crafts of this way of being, of this entitlement that we see in figures like Boris Johnson and David Cameron. Yeah, they, they just do not question. They, they, they see a place, uh, a wall, if you like, or a bedrock that they, they, they just simply refuse to, to penetrate or, to, or, to, or just even to bring into question. And I'd say it's so, their, their, their sort of class position is so ingrained in these people that it doesn't even occur to them that it's possible to question somewhat deeper and, uh, and somewhat further. 
than they are prepared to do. And the question is, it, do the good guys wear white hats and are the good guys automatically the establishment? But I've listened to them and, of course, they do, they do have data, uh, people of, of, of that type. So I've listened to them and, obviously, I've carried on with... Um, I've heard Zelensky speak and I've listened to pro, pro, Prime Minister's questions and I've gone back to the United Nations and I've had to listen to what Mr Putin has to say and so on and so forth, as well as uh, trying to read up sort of pretty quickly, trying to get up to speed on what strikes me as, strikes me as very important historical junctures, which are the, uh, the history of the USSR from... 45 to 89, 45, the end of World War Two. 89, the, the fall of the Berlin War. And then some of the history of the former republics of the Soviet Union since 89, since the, uh, the beginning of the breakup of the Soviet Union. And, of course, uh, Ukraine was one of the member republics of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. This was not one monolithic culture, it was a federation of states, uh, 15 states. Uh, after World War II, it contained 15 states. I think Ukraine was there from the beginning, from 1917 or 1918. Um, I'm a bit hazy about what really went down in, in the revolution in Ukraine, and, and it'll be something to, to read up on. But certainly... Um, by 89, the Ukraine was one of the constituent republics of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and obviously it was the second biggest one, I think, or maybe the third biggest. I'm not sure whether Ukraine's bigger than Kazakhstan. I suspect not, because Kazakhstan was one, one of the uh, republics. Anyway, a big, a big country, currently 40-odd million people, big landmass, bigger than France, about the size of France and Germany, or half of Germany, you know, it's a big, big country. And, and it was a constituent republic with its own president, its own Duma, its own Communist Party, and so forth. So that is a significant history which I've tried to get up to speed on. And the other thing is that, that I mean, we, the, the, the colour revolution of um, whenever that was, way back, uh, the Orange Revolution... And, but uh, I think that's kind of uh, it set some kind of precedence, but not as important as the Maidan. I don't think. Well, certainly in my mind, the Maidan protests and uh, revolution. Though I have to, I'll just say it here before we get to it. This was not a left left wing uh, revolution. It wasn't even really a revolution, but it was a, certainly a, a protracted protest uh, in in Maidan Square. It, in Kiev, Ukraine, in 2014. That strikes me as a turning point in many ways. So, so historically, those are some things that I would want to look at. I did plan to, to make one episode on history and, and then with a second part in the same episode about what the discourses tell us, what there is this collision of discourses, this collision of, of, of competing perspectives, what it actually signifies, both in detail and, and in its general character. And, and uh, I, I want to look at that for what it tells us about propaganda because I think there's two or three sort of standard 
operations, propaganda operations, that really do jump to the fore if you take that line of inquiry. And the more people that know how this stuff works, the better, the less chance there is that we can be kind of jerked about by it and persuaded to take a a stupid and um, dangerous actions as a result. Okay, so what's the background to this 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 war? And how should we look for the background to this war? Well, there's an old adage, isn't there, which is, uh, follow the money. And all kinds of liberal commentators and even right commentators like this, they like to follow the money. But of course, you know, Karl Marx tells us that, you know, well, just dig down a bit and look at the base. It's all very well having your culture wars about the superstructure, about the competing ideas. And I do think competing ideas are, are, are very, very important and competing beliefs are very important. It strikes me that the superstructure, um, the world of culture, the world of ideas, the world of concepts, the world of language, is a material force, though of a slightly different character from the material force of the production of pig iron um, in the last financial quarter you know I don't want to get too sort of um, old fashioned Soviet Union and about the the analysis but nevertheless I do, I do think you always look at the material base always you know as being perhaps uh, uh, if I have any Marxism it's perhaps contaminated by a kind of Hegelianism here but nevertheless I'm, I always, I always uh, follow the money I always look at what's happening at the material base and I think this is what we need to do here. And, well, who's going to profit from what is going on? Who benefits? Who profits? And, of course, the answer is our old friends, the military-industrial complex. You may have noticed, uh, as a result of the, the panic, hysteria, dread, shock that has emanated from this series of events. But G- Germany, the most pacific country in the world, having learned its lesson from World War Two, almost doubles its defence spend- spending overnight and starts to become militarily active again, beyond sending a few small number of troops to NATO and stuff. Um, Germany, post-World War II, we can say as a country, has been extremely conflict-hesitant, um, extremely cagey about any kind of militarism. And, but that's changed, and it changed overnight. Now, this, 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 the powerhouse of Europe, this enormously uh, productive country, industrialised country, Really, the powerhouse of Europe and the political powerhouse of Europe in many ways. If you if you study Yanis Varoufakis's book, um, Adults in the Room, about the um, the rape of the Greek Greek economy by the Troika, the IMF, the Council of Ministers, and the World Bank, the role of Germany in that, the role of the German finance minister in that 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 series of events, you realise that, that that Germany is in, is enormously powerful politically, economically, industrially, but now also is about to become powerful military militarily again. I doubt this is a prospect that's greeted in Moscow with very much pleasure, and in, indeed Europe 
and NATO, the countries of NATO have said that, well, okay, they will have a stab at getting their 2% of GDP, uh, which uh, Mr uh, Trump got his knickers in a twist about the fact that the Germans didn't want to spend money on NATO and he wanted them to spend 2% like the US did. On, um, I think the US actually spends a bit more than that. But it's been a bone of contention, but su- suddenly Europe falls into line, and particularly Germany, on military spending. Well, they're going to spend this money somewhere, some company somewhere, they're going to have some vastly enhanced profits as a result of this. Similarly, um, obviously at the heart of the beast, the US, the, the US uh, Department of Defence and uh, the, the uh, fascist revolving door between Department of Defence politicians, officials and apparatchiks of the actual companies, the corporations that manufacture the cruise missiles, Raytheon. And Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics and Halliburton and Boeing, etc., etc. Northrop Grumman, I'm not sure how you say that. Uh, in fact, are all in re- reporting massive uh, profit spikes just right now. So, military industrial complex looks like uh, once again making a killing. All this, remember in the context of the de-dollarisation project uh, between China, Russia, Iran and possibly other interested parties. And there's another aspect uh, in this follow the money line that we would like to consider, that, that we ought to consider, and that is well, what resources is Ukraine sitting on? Well, Ukraine is, is, is a country... I've heard it said it's the poorest country in Europe. And whether that's true, I don't know, but it's, certainly, it's not amazingly wealthy. I'd like, to, I'd like to say it ought to be. And, I mean, it does have, a, 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 I think, uh, quite a high levels of education and, and so forth, and the infrastructure was kind of not, not terrible... It's not third world. But it has emerged from the situation which ensued after the demise of the Soviet Union, of which it was a part, in in, uh, in uh, 91. So resources. Well, there's an interesting fact that there's quite a lot of lithium in the Ukraine. Now, I've also heard it said that it's got the, the greatest natural gas reserves in, in Europe, apart from Norway. In other reports, they said that it, it did have a lot of gas, which is exhausted. But I, th- I think that the foreman is the truth there, but I will dig a bit deeper to see if I can get to the bottom of why we've got some conflicting figures on that. Uh, there is coal. There's a lot of coal. Most of it's actually in the Donbass, which is a region... Uh, which has been in civil war for the last eight years. And this war really is a continuation of that war. You know, you say, oh, it's a war overnight, just broke up. No, they've been fighting for eight years. 14,000 people have died in the Donbass in what's basically a civil war between uh, Russian uh, separatists in those areas 
who I say they're Russian, they're Russian speakers, and they're in the majority in those areas. But this this is the area which I think has got most of the coal reserves as well, uh, which re- apparently uh, Ukraine has got enough coal reserves to last it for 500 years, should it dig it out. Uh, the impact on the climate, of course, would be uh, interesting. But there you go, they do at least have this stuff and people are still burning it and they can still sell it for money. There's also considerable quantities of iron, iron ore, and valuable quantities of iron ore. Significant quantities of titanium, a strategic mineral, and and other other minerals. I mean, Ukraine also... uh, I've heard it said it's the third biggest producer of grain, mostly winter wheat, but also barley, buckwheat, and so forth. Uh, on the planet, and the, uh, a lot of this grain gets exported. Yesterday, the Ukrainian government announced that it wouldn't be exporting any grain because it's it's worried about food security for its people as, as cities are coming under siege and the infrastructure is being destroyed and agriculture disrupted and food distribution disrupted and there is basically a humanitarian emergency. So the government says, well, we're not going to export any food under these conditions. But the countries who get this food, of course, are now going to have bread, a bread crisis as, as they have to import grains from elsewhere. As, as, as the price of grain will skyrocket on the world markets... And it, there will be civil unrest, possibly in the Middle East, where some of this, where quite a fair lump of this grain seems to go. Do remember that the Syrian business started off with bread riots because of a grain crisis, because of failed harvest, harvests, uh, in turn because of, of drought, no doubt associated with climate change. So, shit storm all round, you know, but uh, they're sitting on some kind of valuable minerals there, now isn't that interesting? The, the Donbass, I would also uh, re- remind you, is the most industrialised part of the Ukraine as well. So, it just creates a slightly different picture in your mind when you sort of start looking at these sort of nitty-gritty and, 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 and rather boring details, you know, what what you know, what did what minerals has the country got, you know, what resources has it got, what's its trade picture, what's what kind of a place is it, you know, and um, in fact and who's and this other question, this related question, who's gonna profit profit from war? It does all sort of look a little bit a little bit different from the picture that the media is now busily painting that this is somehow like a, a Superman movie or a Spider-Man movie in which there's this, this great mannequin struggle between good and evil and um, we've got Zelensky on the one hand, Super Zelensky you know, who, who's a superhero and m- morally unimpeachable and totally politically right on who's going to sa- save the planet with his integrity and his truth, justice and the American way scenario a superhero, a god on the one hand and supervillain Putin on the other the global political equivalent of Lex Luthor or the Joker or something like that this and this the stupid cartoon world is what we're being fed, and the truth is, we need to start digging down into things like the money, 
the resources and so forth. Okay, a little, a little bit of uh, of the, the history here now. And as I said, you know, I, I kind of focused on, on three areas. History of the USSR, 45 to 89, former republics of Soviet Union since 89, and uh, the, the Maidan Square protests of 2014. I'm just going to reiterate, though, that we're, we're, we're swimming in the sea of disinformation and propaganda and extreme care is needed. And even hist and, and, and whatever historical facts we get, we still need to interpret them and weave them into, into a coherent narrative that needs also to have a, a plausibility and which also needs to have this, this I would call it, you know, factual kind of grounding. Even though we will never, ever uh, remove that interpretative element and that is the nature of the beast and that's why we need to get really good at it and really understand it as well as a modus of, of thought so the first thing is uh, we go all the way back to the Kievan Rus 9th century and uh, Kiev was was a city and a metropolis and a, a cosmopolitan city uh, whilst Moscow was still a village way back in the 9th century and it, it did form the centre of a uh, 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 civilization, you might say in which uh, the Vikings, the Rus you know, the Vikings being red-bearded you know, this is what this means uh, travelled all over that that part of, of Western, uh, Eastern Europe coming both in from the Baltic and travelling southwards and but also going up through the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and up up the the river there, and 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 uh, the Kievan Rus were, were sort of part descendants of Vikings. But the idea that, that out of this grew some kind of long enduring and uh, Russian civilization, Russian Empire, you know, the Pan Slavish myth is just not true. There were a few occasions under a couple of powerful and, and I suppose um, uh, clever rulers uh, but for the most part uh, this wasn't the case that there was a lot of changing of borders a lot of swirling a lot of turbulence and that for, for large periods of this history this so called Russian empire consisted of city states who were fighting each other and competing with each other uh, the, 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 the pan-slavic myth that, that Mr. Putin trots out for for domestic consumption is just simply not true. In other words, it doesn't have a very solid foundation in anything that actually ever happened, and that we can, with quite a high degree of confidence, ascertain that that is the case. I mean, these are borderlands. In fact, the word Ukraine means borderland. And what I suggest you do, uh, this is very, very instructive, and I'll get as many people as I can to do this, is to, is to get onto YouTube and put in a search for European borders in the last 2,000 years. And you can get like a map of Europe comes up on the screen and it animates the uh, all the different border changes, the different countries, the little principalities and states that emerged and then the big empires that emerged over 2,000 years. And you can get this and it's kind of all animated down into a few minutes and it's fascinating. And borders are in the light of 
such videos, um, you know, kind of become pretty meaningless. Subspecies see attorney titles under the eye of eternity. All of our, our European borders, over which we are sort of very ready to sh- shed blood, are kind of meaningless. They're certainly arbitrary. And nowhere more so than Ukraine. I mean, there was a period when, when Poland, and I think it's Lithuania, had this sort of joint empire, the Polish-Lithuanian empire, which straight away, stretched all the way down to the Black Sea. I mean, at other times, Poland and Lithuania completely no longer existed at all. I mean, Lithuania was, in fact, like absorbed into the Soviet Union for 70-odd years. And then re-emerges when the, the Soviet Union falls to pieces in, in 91. All of this makes for a very, very complex history, and it, it should sober the mind in such a way that it, that it avoids the, these big cartoonish de- descriptions. Also, I- in this vein, we need, we need to consider you know, the, the, the demographic constitution of the Ukraine. Now, the, the Ukrainian is, is a separate language from, from Russian, for a start. There's a language issue, there's a culture war issue. And... Uh, even though they're, they're both Slavic languages and they're, they're sort of quite re- quite related, they're nevertheless they're diverged in, in, I don't know, in about the 15th, 14th, 15th, 16th century, they diverged. And 67%, I believe it is, of Ukrainians have Ukrainian as their first language. And the other 30-odd percent... Russian. There are some other language minorities as well, I think, uh, some Romanians and some Poles and, and so forth, but as your two main language groups. And you, you know, two-thirds two thirds Ukrainian, one-third Russian. Most of the, the native Russian speaking, the con- speakers are concentrated in the the, the, the the south and the south-east. And the, uh, the Donbass, which is the contested area which has been in a state of civil war between Russian separatists backed by the Russian government and Russian military and the Ukrainian government and and, and also militias uh, um, in a separatist m- movement. And this is, this is a war that's killed 14,000 people over the last um, eight years. That is a, a Russian-speaking major- majority area. Crimea also, uh, which, as you'll hear shortly, was taken back into Russia from the Ukraine, also has a Russian majority of speakers. But now, now here's the thing here, here's uh, an interesting thing. Most people, almost everybody is bilingual. And because of Ukraine's position in the Soviet Union for all those years, it's a Russian, you could say, it was the language of the hegemon. And therefore, attracted more kudos, more respectability. And the, the, the fact is that, m- that most of the TV programs, most of the the books and the bookshops and the newspaper stands are actually Russian language outfits. And I suppose it seems like getting Ukrainian books is a bit like getting Welsh books in Wales. You know, there's 
in a very in a very Welsh speaking village or town, there might be a Welsh bookshop. You know, but it's a special thing, a Welsh bookshop. If you want a book in Welsh, you have to go to the Welsh bookshop. Books in any other language, there's just the bookshops. You know, and, and, and apparently. Uh, it seems like Ukraine is a bit like that. So there's, there's, there's this language of the hege- hegemon prejudice towards Russian at the same time as the majority of the people speak Ukrainian. Two-thirds, but not a great majority, two-thirds. And so, so that's the, 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 the cultural position. I mean, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of interesting demographic stuff, you know, and, and, and class stuff as well, which we, we kind of go into. But just bear that in mind as, as, a, as a sort of a background, and you'll see it does play into the way things have unfolded. So I'm saying a very complex history. And I can only offer you a, a sketch here, you know, and uh, I, I tried to get up to speed on this in, 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 in a few days, so... It, but nevertheless, I'm fairly confident that pretty or most of what I say... To you is not going to mislead lead you, but you should always check, always check. But uh, I, I try and uh, uh, do my best to help you to get stuff that you can you, you can have some confidence and trust in. So it's a very complex history, but and in my notes I've underlined but <laughs> many foreign policy experts spoke out and warned against the westward expansion of NATO. This is going right the way back to the 90s. And I'm, I'm sorting, I think so far I've come across 14 or 15 foreign policy uh, experts, you know, and uh, I mean, these are people who've devoted their lives to the study of these matters in various capacities. You know, there's mili- military apparatchiks, di- diplomats, academics, of course, you know, and, and, and so on. There was a warning against the expansion of NATO westward, and that this would be very dangerous. Now, you might think that this is just a sort of a a lefty thing that, well, of course, we, we we just want to blame blame NATO. We're lefties. We don't like NATO. We want to blame NATO. We want to blame the US military-industrial complex or. Or the um, the archons in in, in Washington, or wherever you want to construe this, but actually not so. It seems that the, the the foreign policy experts, with all kinds of political commitments, from pretty far right to pretty far left, <laughs> if those terms have any any meaning, have come out and said. And warned, and I say this is going back. Do not expand, expand NATO westwards unless you want trouble with Russia. And I say very far right. Henry Kissinger, no less. You know the uh, the architect of Vietnam and the uh, the bombing of Cambodia back into the Stone Age. Doctor Kissinger, Doctor Strangelove says, "Do not do this. Too dangerous." On the other side, Chomsky. And uh, somewhere in the middle between those two, I'd put somebody like John Mearsheimer. I'd take to be a kind of 
critical of, of liberalism, progressive liberal. But a bloke who's de devoted his life to the, the study of uh, global power, power politics. And somebody who goes right to the core of the matter in terms of the fact base. So even though his politics are not my politics, he's still kind of useful to me. As I say, I've gone right the way across the scene and they've all said the same thing. Do not spread NATO westward, which, of course, is what precisely what happened after the demise of the Soviet Union. And uh, in 1989, the, the, just due to internal tensions in the Soviet Union and in the Eastern Bloc and the Warsaw Pact, and with the... Uh, the Eastern European countries that were under Moscow's sphere of influence that were on the eastern side of the Iron Curtain, like East Germany, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania and so on. These are countries which didn't sit under Russian rule, which is what it was, very comfortably, and were always causing tr tr trouble to, to Moscow, to the extent that it had to send at various times tanks into Czechoslovakia and Hungary, earlier on and uh, which uh, sabre rattled uh, Poland's attempts to uh, change its society from within and as a result of all, all this, this, this again this very very complex stuff uh, the Berlin Wall fell and there were talks uh, with uh, Mr Gorbachev and it was agreed that Germany could reunify the old East and West Germany could be brought back together again. Uh, but the, the governments of the US, France and the UK, nuclear powers, right, NATO, the big, the, the big hitters in NATO, was that, yes, uh, they would like the reunification of Germany and uh, agreed that NATO wouldn't attempt to recruit states any further east than, than the new German border and wouldn't have a, a NATO presence of troops and arms anywhere nearer to Russia than, the, the, than the, the, the eastern border of the new Germany, the new unified Germany. And a promise was made to that effect, which, it seems, facilitated uh, Mr Gorbachev's allowing of Germany to reunify. Now, it was a little after that, in 1991, that the Soviet Union itself fell apart. And now, it's interesting how that happened. We, we hear that the, the, the Soviet Union collapsed. This isn't quite what, what happened exactly. I mean, the country was in dire straits, uh, and Mr... Gorbachev realised they couldn't carry on the same and he introduced glasnost and perestroika, glasnost being openness, so freeing up the press, freeing up freedom to, deba to debate. And perestroika, uh, restructuring of the economy, perestroika restructuring, in which some free markets would be allowed and, and, and maybe some political parties and this, this kind of stuff. But the, this was a process that really just uh, gathered a momentum of its own 
and 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 the Soviet Union was unable to sustain itself, given that the, the forces that had been unleashed by Mr. Gorbachev's attempts to save the day, as it were. So by 1991, you got Boris Yeltsin, Prime Minister, not a communist, as the president of, of Russia, the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. I think he was the president. He might have been the the Prime Minister. I forget which. But he, he, he was, for all intents and purposes, the, the head of government of the the Russian, the biggest component, the Russian, and therefore the biggest component of the Soviet Union. And at this point, the Ukrainian government had an independence referendum. This is the, 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 in 1991. And the public of Ukraine de decided that they wanted to be independent. And there was an agreement between uh, Boris Yeltsin, political, uh, the uh, ruler of the Russian... Socialist, Soviet Socialist Republic whoever was the head of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic and the president or prime minister I forget which of Belarus another big player in the Soviet Union of Soviet Socialist Republics there are exactly 15 republics in this setup after, after by the 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 end of World War Two, and there's a settlement, you know, as to what the Soviet Union would, would be there. And the, the, the three presidents agreed that they would go their separate ways, that they're already technically independent countries that, were, that belong to a federation, would withdraw from the federation, from the Union, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And in the Russian constitution, it was it was actually stated that that this could happen. It wasn't as though there was no provision for, for this eventuality. And I think this surprises people that there would be that much kind of leeway and freedom in what's um, generally perceived as being an extremely tight authoritarian dictatorial setup. But nevertheless, there it was. The three presidents agreed to go their separate ways. So on Christmas Day in 1991 in Minsk, the Soviet Union was officially dissolved just by those three presidents saying we're not we're just going our own way now. That of course meant that the Soviet, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics ceased to exist, and therefore that Mr. Mr. Go, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, no longer had a job as the president of the the. the, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And there it was, it happened. I mean, there ensued, like, uh, again, a very, very complex situ uh, uh, situation in which there were various um, coup, coup attempts and attacks. The Duma was attacked, the Kremlin was attacked, there was a certain amount of shooting went on. And it'd be, it's, it's interesting it is to go into this, and it really is fascinating. I think it's not serving our purposes, other than to say a massive general instability then ensued. Obviously, everything collapsed. The, the, the economy, the institutions, it was, a right, it was a right mess, and there was tremendous, tremendous chaos, poverty, 
and even up to and including shoot, shooting wars around the periphery and so on. I mean, for example, Tajikistan, one of the 15 republics, just went straight into into civil war uh, between Isla- Islamists and, and all communists and all the rest of it. I forget the ex- exact ins and outs of this, but there were internal pressures there that, that only the Soviet Union as a, as a monolithic authoritarian union was able to sit on and then the minute the minute it, it, the minute the Soviet Union dissolved civil war breaks out so it was a tremendous mess and the, the suffering on the Russian people was, was incredible I mean Yeltsin brought in market reforms there were contingencies of uh, advisors from the US and Europe over there conducting shock, shock therapy on the economy in which it would be returned to a free market economy. All this is happening at the peak of, uh, of neoliberal religious fanaticism throughout, throughout the capitalist world, which we now know is discredited. And, but this was all foisted on, on, on the long-suffering Russian, Russian people. I mean, the, re- the result was that all, all of the, the state-owned Assets, the people-owned assets, were just kind of stripped by those with the wherewithal to do it, and enormous fortunes were made. And these are our kind of famous Russian oligarchs who've got fabulous wealth. This is how they got their wealth. They got their wealth by kleptocratically stealing the people's infrastructure, Gazprom and all the rest of it. Bearing in mind that, that, again, Russia is potentially enormously wealthy with the amount of gas and oil and minerals that it's sitting on. So we have, we have this context of, of, of Ukraine break, breaking out of the, the Soviet Union. The fact that it was in the Soviet Union kind of gives Russian nationalists a bit of an excuse to say, well, they shouldn't have left anyway, they're a part of us, we're just taking it back, you know, and those discourses do... To uh, uh, circulate amongst many others, as you know. So you've got this context, you've got this setting. And remember a promise that NATO wouldn't extend eastwards, but of course it did straight away, well, fairly soon. And this went in two waves. Uh, without again going into the detail, I mean, it's, uh, I think there was, I don't know, 13, 14 countries, 15, I don't know, I think something in that order of countries joined NATO. Formerly Warsaw Pact countries, countries that formerly were under the, the Russian sphere of influence that were communist countries, communist inverted commas. And uh, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania became NATO countries and also joined the EU in time. Romania, Czech Republic, so on. And uh, Poland. So NATO extended eastward, right up to the Russian border in the case of Estonia, Latvia and uh, Lithuania, right up to the Russian border. Against all the advice of people who do have some detailed knowledge of all this complexity that I'm alluding to. I think 
at this point you hear arguments saying, well, Russian didn't, Russia didn't really say anything about that. But there's no doubt about it, they didn't like it. And they, a promise that had been made to them was... It was broken. So there was a resentment there, I would, I would say. And I, I think the people who say, oh, it, it didn't matter then, why does it matter now? I think are probably not really looking deeply enough into what happened. But, you know, it's probably worth somebody out there if you've got the time to do the research and really make sure on that. What we have to remember is that in World War Two, the, the the Soviet Union was invaded by Germany, and the Ukraine was was the battleground for, for a large part of the to and fro in between the, the various armies: the German army, the Russian, the Red Army. As as, as the German army is heading towards Russia, it comes as the German army heading east gets into Ukraine. They behaved atrociously. They starved villages out just to see what would happen if you just starved the entire population. There was atrocities of an unimaginable scale. Some Ukrainians sided with the Nazis because they thought that they were the lesser evil, perhaps. And obviously many, 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 many joined were in the Red Army and in the effort to push Germany back. This cost the, the Soviet Union as a whole, I don't know, fig, figures vary, but you're looking at 20 million dead. The awful siege of, like, siege of Leningrad in which people were eating rats and, uh, and just suffering with an intensity, it's, 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 kind of, it's, it's hard for modern people to imagine. So there's an enormous resonance still in Russia with, with that. It's a country that was also 100 years prior to that invaded by uh, Napoleon and, again, causing enormous suffering. And this is a point I want to bring out about, about propaganda and it's, it's the way in which events, which are quite distant now, it was, I mean, the war ended in 1945... That's getting 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 on up towards I don't know what is it eighty years or something. There are very few people alive in any of these countries with really active memories of, of what went on there. Nevertheless, it continues to resonate. Now we we, we in the UK live in a in, in a country where World War Two is still very much alive, and the, all the Brexit Brexit nonsense that we lived through from twenty sixteen onwards in this country was absolutely infused down to the last molecule with the whiff of World War Two, Though hardly anybody partaking in the various campaigns and, 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 and the vote even, was, it was alive at that time. There's nevertheless this folk myth by now. We can't call it a memory. It's, 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 it's moved into myth. But it resonates very, very powerfully in the United Kingdom, and we all know this, uh, we English, Welsh, Scottish, Irish, Northern Irish people uh, uh, living in this country, that's just how deeply that re resonated. Now, bear in mind that, that apart from the Channel Islands, no part of the United Kingdom was invaded. It was bombed, and many, many, many uh, young uh, British people lost their lives fighting in foreign fields as far away as... 
Southeast Asia, as far away as North Africa, and obviously France, and uh, you know once the Allies landed in Europe. So it's vivid and live. So there was real suffering on part of this country, but you could put it put it next to the Soviet Union, who had this massive army r- rampaging across the territory, and then then which sent an army of eight million men to push them back, which then rampaged all the way across Europe, right the way to Berlin and beyond. Ukraine, of course, getting both waves of movement. It, it, there is no comparison, but what it tells you is. If our myths of World War Two are that strong, how strong are Russia's myths about World War Two? And this is why Mr Gorbachev tried to extract a promise that NATO would not expand any further west. And this is why that the people in the know, the 17 or 18 um, global, global geopolitics ex- experts, urged... US administrations and Western administrations not to push NATO to the to the West. Too, because they are fully cognizant of that resonance in, in Russia. So if you wonder why Mr Putin's rattled, that is why he's rattled. Now I've heard some people stand up and say this is not this, this is nonsense, you know, and say, well, why wasn't he rattled with the first wave of NATO introduction? No, expansion. NATO expansion. But he's suddenly rattled now. Well, actually, he was rattled. I, I remember, this is kind of geeky thing that I do, watching Mr Putin address the United Nations. He went to New York to address the United Nations. He was there, there in, in the assembly. He wasn't um, on a screen somewhere. And he was in a much more relaxed and calm mood than he seems to be in these days. And he said... Do you know how many bases the US has around the world? And he, he gave us the figure, and it's it's 800 plus. In how many countries? 100 plus countries. Oh, it might be 130 countries. Certainly 100 plus countries. 800 bases in 100 plus countries. To the extent that Russia and China, in fact, are, are, are pretty well encircled. And he smiles, his little smile, his cheeky little KGB smile, and says... Do you know how many we've got? And then he, he says, I'll tell you, two. We have two. We have two foreign bases. You have 800. And you wonder why we're a bit jumpy. And then, of course, he smiles his KGB smile again. But this was way back. This is some years back. This has been on his mind for a long time, and it's inevitable that it will be on his mind which is what our foreign policy experts like John Meesheimer, like Noam Chomsky, like even Henry Kissinger fully, fully understand. So I do give a bit of credence to the uh, NATO-pushing West thing as being at least a very large factor in what is now transpiring. I'm not saying that I'm a friend of Mr Putin's. I'm I'm not. (laughs) Uh, and he said it himself, you know, once KGB, always KGB. And these were not pleasant people. I don't believe he's a pleasant man, etc. And all the rest of it. 
So I don't throw that at me. Uh, and it seems to me that the invasion of Ukraine was a criminal act, almost perhaps up to the, the criminality of the invasion of Iraq by by um, the US, fully aided and abetted by the UK, and a so-called Labour leader, Tony Blair. So don't get me wrong on that, but nevertheless, I do, I do, I do seek to, to, to look at some of the explanations and see if they, if they hold any water, and I think that particular one does. If you think that's implausible, I ask you to consider what happened in 2008 at the Bucharest Congress. And uh, this was a NATO Congress. And there was a communique put out at the end, and the, the, I think it might have even been the last item in the communique, was, was the suggestion that Georgia and the Ukraine should join NATO. At this point, Putin turned around and said, no way, this is as far back as 2008. We're not having that, it's too much. Georgia does make, make moves and is, is invaded. Now, some people, even John Mearsheimer, suggest that this was why there was then a war between Russia and Georgia, where Georgia got its uh, its knuckles wrapped by, by the Russian military. It was solely down to Georgia making sort of agreeable noises about NATO membership. But you also remember there was a kind of a military adventure in South Ossetia, Again, the detail, you need to look into it. But again, it's, it's too complicated to say that was simply the sole cause. But nevertheless, the suggestion that Georgia would join, join NATO was followed chronologically by an invasion by the Russian military. Now, it was agreed prior to the... Bucharest Congress of 2008, by the American government, by Congress no less, that, that you know that NATO could expand. Congress passed the notion that NATO could expand, and that they would see if, uh, if if they might be able to expand it eastward. The suggestion is that the way Congress voted for this is that they didn't really un understand it. It was rather flippant. I mean, the truth is that. Somebody living in small town, Idaho, doesn't want to be threatened by nuclear war in order to defend Montenegro in eastern central Europe, a very small country about which they know nothing, which hasn't existed for all that long, and which they, and which they don't even know where it is on a map. And I think that that is actually quite a sane opinion, you know. Why, why, why should I attract a nuclear strike as a small-town American to defend, to defend a tiny place I've never heard of that's, that's got into a quarrel with Russia, about which I know nothing? And that Congress, particularly the Senate, was not very well informed and they rather flippantly passed a an act permitting the expansion of, of NATO. And uh, th this was a move that was led by one Senator Joe Biden. Now, again, I think some, some detailed research would be needed to, to, to say whether that was a reasonable account or not. But uh, 
at the moment, where I'm standing now, it seems to me that that is pretty well how, how it happened. And, and from what I can see about Congress, particularly the, the senators, there, there isn't much that they do understand, except money, except donations. I don't expect rational decisions from that body or informed decisions from that body, to be frank. And Russia was spooked, yes, if Putin said no way, he goes into Georgia, he was spooked. This is, people don't get why he was spooked, but I think what I just mentioned to you about World War II, how large it looms, and the remarkable phenomenon that it can still loom large, now, even though all the, all the people who were involved in it, for the most part, 90, 80% of them have now gone to the happy hunting ground or to Valhalla. I mean, this is a very important point to, to register, is just how long a collective trauma can endure, even though the people who were originally traumatised might no longer be on the scene. We've seen things playing out in Northern Ireland over in the 20th century that were, that were sparked off in 1690 by the Battle of the Boyne. This is how long memories are. And you think the Irish have got long memories, come to Wales, you know. You can have a conversation with somebody and they'll be shaking their head about what happened in 1284, you know. Long memories. And it's a remarkable fact and maybe it's something that you manage to try and cure itself from. But it's this, this, this way in which a collective trauma can roll and roll and roll. But in a sense, you know, Putin has learnt the, the, the lesson of history but and, and maybe he, he learned it too well, you know. Whichever way you look at it, you know, I mean, you, so this is Putin learning the lesson of history. But Russia was spooked, and it's no good shaking your head and saying, why are they being so silly? 20 million dead, at least. A broken promise. All the agony of the of the reconstruction, the peri, the perestroika after the collapse. I mean, Yeltsin tried all kinds of things. He tried his market reforms and all the rest of it, and the economy kept kept going down and going down. At, at one point, Yeltsin had done everything he can, and he'd done what he was told to by by his advisers from the Chicago School or wherever, you know, from from the uh, the, the vultures that swept in the minute there were pickings on a broken economy. And inflation was at 245% under, under Yeltsin. He couldn't, couldn't stabilise the economy. We've been going for over an hour now, so uh, I should draw this to a close. I just want to uh, add a couple of points which really underscore much of what I've said in this podcast. And also, uh, I, obviously, I'm going to have to postpone the material on uh, the events in the Maidan in 2014, and that will now get its own episode, and I'll get that out as soon as I can, hopefully in a few days. So, my, my two points, really, here, here are follow the money, and... There's a contention that that is uh, kind of quite revelatory for us. And the move of the Ukraine towards NATO membership 
was probably indeed a, a, a step too far for uh, Russia and there was ample warning about this from policy experts as well as from uh, Mr Putin himself. Now, in, in the matter of follow the money, when NATO expanded after the 2008 Minsk declaration, but by uh, quite a large number of countries that had previously been in the Warsaw Pact. Of course, all the military equipment needed to be uh, replaced and brought up to NATO standard because NATO military nations, they've got a common set of uh, military specifications so that presumably that equipment and ammunition and stuff is sort of transferable. And in refurbishing the 14 or 15 new national armies as NATO expanded, uh, obviously made the military-industrial complex a real fat lot of money. And they stand to make even more money out of the war and should the plan to incorporate Ukraine into NATO, I've gone ahead, they would have made again another big lump of dosh. Now, I just had a look at the NATO website, actually, because I wasn't quite certain when it was that the Ukraine government changed the constitution of the Ukraine to contain a clause indicating the aspiration to join NATO, and that was as recently... That's 2019. This followed uh, policies very friendly towards NATO that were adopted in 2017 by the Ukraine parliament. As late as September 20, uh, Zelensky approved a security strategy, again with an aspiration to uh, closer cooperation with NATO, eventual membership of NATO. Just like to read a few of the items out of the NATO website on this matter, and there's quite a long set of bullet points, and it really does underscore John Mearsheimer's point that de jure Ukraine is actually not in NATO, and it's perfectly in order for Biden and Johnson to. Uh, refuse to offer a no-fly zone to Ukraine on legal grounds. But nevertheless, de facto, Ukraine is as good as in NATO. And I thought that was perhaps a little slightly overdrawn when I heard him say it, uh, but having looked at the NATO website, I think he's bang on. I'll quote now from the site. In the intro paragraph, NATO says this. So I quote... A sovereign, independent and stable Ukraine, firmly committed to democracy and the rule of law, is key to Euro-Atlantic security. Relations between NATO and Ukraine date back to the early 90s and have since developed into one of the most substantial of NATO's partnerships. Since 2014, in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, cooperation has intensified in critical areas. Then we have a list of bullet points, and there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 13 bullet points in there. Let me just see what we've got. Well, Ukraine actually became independent in 
1991 and joined the North Atlantic Cooperation Council. And then the Partnership for Peace programme, which was 94. These are all NATO initiatives. Uh, relations strengthened with the signing of the 97 Charter of Distinctive Partnership, which established the NATO-Ukraine Commission to take cooperation forward. Since 2009, the NUC has overseen Ukraine's Euro-Atlantic integration process, including reforms under the annual national programme. Cooperation has deepened over time and is mutually beneficial, with Ukraine actively contributing to NATO-led operations and missions. Get that? Ukraine has actually already participated in NATO missions. Priority is given to support for comprehensive reform in the security and defence sector, which is vital for Ukraine's democratic development and strengthening its ability to defend itself. Um, and there's, there's more, I mean, we could go on. It's just saying, June 17, the Ukrainian parliament adopted legislation reinstating membership of NATO as a strategic and foreign security policy. In 2019, um, security policy objective. In 2019, the corresponding amendment to Ukraine's constitution entered into force. In 20... September 2020, President Volodymyr Zelensky approved Ukraine's new national security strategy which provides for the development of the distinctive partnership with NATO with the aim of membership of NATO. Uh, next point is very interesting. In response to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, NATO has reinforced its support for capability development and capacity building in Ukraine. The Allies condemned and will not recognise Russia's illegal and illegitimate annexation of Crimea and its destabilising and aggressive activities in eastern Ukraine and the Black Sea region. NATO has increased its presence in the Black Sea and stepped up maritime cooperation with Ukraine and Georgia. And then it goes on. In fact, they're, they're, this list of bullet points, so this is all frequent, condemns the attack of February 22, which of course is this current war. That, that I, th I think, really makes John uh, Mearsheimer's point seem less elliptical. Anyway, that's enough. Uh, coming in the future, uh, part three of this series, which was originally planned to be two parts, and as, as you might have noticed now, these projects expand outward as you discover more and more stuff. I would say there is there's a, a, an infinite bottomless pool of knowledge on any topic whatsoever, almost. So, the next one will be about the Maidan, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to have a little look a bit a bit further on that one. I have tried to ascertain what what went down there, and it really is again it's a fog of war kind of scenario. But I will look at it, and there will be an episode on it, and then we'll take a look at, at the the. The propaganda discourses surrounding the whole thing from all sides and see what we discern there and see if it's of any interest and use to us okay make knowledge great again thanks for listening i know it's long but this is what happens when you try and find out what's going on so over and out and remember to wash your hands <laughs>